What is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Hello, everybody. Happy holidays. Getting ready for Christmas just a few days away. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever it is you celebrate. Someone's definitely going to listen to this like next June and be like, what the F? Well, if you are listening in June or the summertime, happy summer. (laughs) Whenever. Um, Thank you guys so much for tuning in today. And big shout out to Melissa for recommending today's case. I had not heard of it previously, but it is a devastating story. So thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, Thank you in advance to those who decide to share this case. And uh, let's get let's get right to it. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get into it. I almost said let's get into it. You almost said my line. How dare I? How dare you? All right, guys, this is episode 264 of Going West, so let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, the Jordan Harbinger Show. A podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests. And there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations. Or search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In November of 2001, a Colorado woman and her six-year-old daughter disappeared almost without a trace, leaving behind just a puddle of blood in their home. Although this small, devoutly religious family appeared perfect from the outside, all was exposed after they went missing. This is the story of Jennifer and Abby Blagg.
Jennifer Jo Lohman was born on January 8th, 1967 in Ardmore, Oklahoma to Maryland and Harold Lohman, and she had a brother named David. One friend who had known her since childhood proclaimed, quote, she was just the sweetest girl you ever met. Jennifer grew up in a very typical Southern Christian home. Her faith was extremely important to her, and she made it the focal point of her life. She started attending church and Sunday school with her family at a very young age, and Jennifer just in general was incredibly bright, and she was a very active teenager. She danced for her school's palm squad, and she sang in the choir. After graduating from Ardmore High School, Jennifer left Oklahoma altogether, and she decided to move to the West Coast, moving to San Diego, California, to attend National University as a business major. But outside of her career aspirations, she had big dreams for her family life and more than anything, looked forward to being a wife and a mother. She told a college friend that her dream was to find a, quote, strong family man to provide for her so that she was able to be the devoted mother and wife that she dreamed of being. And at 21 years old, her dream came true. Jennifer was about to finish college when she met 25-year-old Michael Blagg at a party in San Diego, and it was reportedly love at first sight. She told her friends that he was her Prince Charming, and one friend remembered, quote, She was always looking for just a great family man, a good Christian man. And another said, quote, They were soulmates. This was the man that God had picked out for her. Michael was a helicopter pilot for the U.S. Navy stationed in San Diego at the time and came from a very prominent and wealthy family. But most importantly for Jennifer, he was also a devoted Christian. Jennifer couldn't believe her luck that this man checked every single one of her boxes. And she even had an affinity for pilots. After Michael did two tours in the Navy with Operation Desert Storm, he retired and took a position as an engineer. On November 16, 1991, after dating for about three years, Michael and Jennifer were married in Fort Worth, Texas. And on March 21, 1995, they welcomed a daughter named Abby. Abby Jo Blagg was described by her family as beautiful and energetic, a happy and very kind little girl. After Abby was born, Michael took a job in South Carolina, where the couple wanted to raise their daughter in this idyllic southern town that centered around their religion. So they put down their roots in Simpsonville, South Carolina, which is a small community with a passion for church. Michael even took up teaching Sunday school, and their new tightly knit circle of friends described them as the quote, perfect couple. In fact, one friend even said, quote, almost too perfect. Michael seemed to relish being the head of the household, which in theory seemed like a perfect fit for Jennifer's traditional values. But this quickly got out of control. He was overprotective to a fault, becoming possessive over every minute of her time, especially when he was at work and she was at home. In an interview later, one friend revealed that if Jennifer stepped out of the house by herself, she had to call him when she reached her destination. Again, when she left, and then also when she arrived home. He had to approve what she wore and how she dressed 
including her new hairstyles. Yuck, man. Yeah, that is not good. No, no, no. So one afternoon, Jennifer had friends over to her house and just kind of lost track of time. And it had gotten too close to when Michael was expected to arrive home, and she still had to cook dinner and prepare the house for his homecoming. So she panicked and kicked her friends out. But when friends addressed their concerns, Jennifer just kind of sloughed off criticism and claimed that he was just old-fashioned. Oh, God, yeah, 1950s old-fashioned. Yeah, very true. However, Jennifer's mother, Marilyn, remembers a terrifying night in Corpus Christi, Texas, where he had been so drunk that he threatened her and tried to choke her. And this is what her mom said, quote, She called home one night and said that Mike had cornered her in the bedroom, and obviously he was drunk. I understood that he was trying to choke her. After two years in South Carolina, Michael got a job offer in Grand Junction, Colorado, which is a western Colorado city just over the border of Utah. Michael was hired by Amatech Dixon, which is a global manufacturer of like electronics and equipment. And while it was a salary increase for Michael, it would also mean that he could break Jennifer away from her newfound freedom and her friend group who were without a doubt voicing their concerns to her. Yeah. So basically he's like, yeah, this is a good move for me. I can take this job, but also... I, she doesn't get to have friends anymore. Yeah, now she's going to be lonely and she's just going to pay attention to me, which is like a horrible thing to want for your partner. Yeah, he's a little psychotic. So Jennifer was absolutely devastated to leave her friends behind, but she couldn't stand in his way. You know, like she knew that this was a better position for him and she wanted the best for him, despite how controlling he was over her. She still wanted the best for him because she is a lovely person. So she started over as best she could, again, just pouring her energy into church and trying to establish a community and put down roots in their new hometown. But not knowing any better, new friends from their church in Grand Junction claimed that Michael was charming and affable and just the perfect family man. Oh, God, they just didn't know him. They didn't know him. So Jennifer's friends claimed at this point in her life, she was miserable. But Michael himself said, quote, I had everything. I was on top of the world. I had a great job, wonderful family, incredible wife and daughter. Everything was going perfect for me. So according to Michael's account, Tuesday, November 13th, 2001 began just like any other day. He rose early for work and left when the girls were still sleeping, expecting that Jennifer would wake up and get Abby ready for school. At 7 a.m., he called and left her a message that said, quote, Good morning, gorgeous. It's me, just calling to see how you and Abby are doing. She neither answered nor called back. Now, at 11.46 a.m., he tried again, saying, quote, Hey, where are you? I'm just calling to see how you're doing. And then again at noon, he called and said, quote, Hello, my beautiful bride. Hope you're having fun. You're out and about doing all kinds of cool and nifty things. The fuck? So weird. And then he still did not receive a response. So at 2.08 p.m., he called a final time. And he said, quote, Man, where are you guys? I hope everything's going okay. I love you. 
So Michael described being concerned by this as his wife was not one to skirt his phone calls. Well, what's interesting about this is that he seems so positive, like my beautiful bride. Like he's he's acting so oh everything's lovely. Yeah, even and that's though, that's suspicious to me. Well, yeah, because the first call was what at seven a.m. and then this last voicemail, sorry, is at two p.m. So that is seven hours later. I don't think you would have this same cheery tone, especially somebody who keeps such strong tabs on his wife. You know, like she can't even go to the store she can't and come change back her hairstyle. without getting three phone calls. So yeah. it's like, I don't know. It's already w- sounding weird, you know, at this point in the story that he is so chipper. Right. But what Michael found was alarming. There was a large pool of blood at the head of the bed in his and Jennifer's bedroom. So heavy that it had dripped down to the carpet and formed another significant pool of blood on the carpet below. Jennifer's purse and its contents were scattered on the floor. The house, usually in pristine condition, was a mess with clothing, loose change, and household items scattered about. Now in Abby's room, the daughter, her bedding was rumpled, kind of as if she had like been pulled from it in one like fell swoop and the clothes that she was supposed to be wearing to school that day were still laid out. So Michael called 911 immediately, audibly panicking and crying into the recorded call with the operator. Sobbing, he implored the operator, quote, where could they be? Weird thing to say. Police initiated a search of the house and the surrounding area, and strangely, although the amount of blood in Jennifer and Michael's bedroom was alarming and likely would have been fatal, there was no blood found anywhere else in the house, indicating that if Jennifer had been injured, she hadn't walked or stumbled to any other part of the house, since the blood would have dripped and left traces behind, of course. So this leads us to believe that she was probably killed in one place and then her body was moved. But obviously this is still very strange because even if her body had been moved, uh, you would imagine that there would be drops of blood still somewhere throughout the house. Yeah, like even a small trace. Right. But when they reached the garage, they did find more blood. So the family's red minivan that Jennifer drove was still parked inside with the garage door closed. And inside the car, police found droplets of blood splattered all over, including on the steering wheel, the brake pedal, and the back seat. So police remarked that initially it seemed like a kidnapping, but if Jennifer and Abby had been taken, why had the car returned? Like if somebody did come into the house and kill them or injure them and took them out of the house, why was the car in the driveway Like that's, yeah. or in the garage? That is a really weird sign. Yeah, the killer slash perpetrator would have just taken the car and maybe abandoned it somewhere else. Unless they live in that house. Right. So the Mesa County Sheriff's Office brought Michael in for questioning, of course, and he said he couldn't imagine who would have done this to his wife and daughter or to their family. He told law enforcement they had a beautiful, strong, healthy marriage. He described his beloved Jennifer as a wonderful and responsible wife and mother and a godly woman. He said, quote, We have a wonderful marriage. Abby was a beautiful little girl, and she was a wonderful, energetic little child. There's some scary thoughts going on in my mind about what could be happening and what's happening to her. 
There are sick people in this world, and honestly, I wouldn't let my mind go to these things. So very interesting that he's speaking of his daughter in the past tense. Yeah, when I said was, I was emphasizing. I'm sure he did not emphasize, but I was emphasizing that for y'all. I mean, it's just interesting that he does say was twice and then says... You know, I just don't know what could be happening or what's happening to her. But the good thing is that police officers, you know, they're trained to pick up on things like this. Of course. So I'm sure that they were very suspicious as well. So while still new to the community, the Blags were very involved with their new church. Now, the church organized a massive volunteer effort, conducting searches via horseback, ATV, on foot, and also by car. And on November 16th, 2001, Three days after the girls went missing, Michael held a press conference pleading for the safe return of his wife and daughter. He stood in front of the media and his community, holding Jennifer's mother's hand, standing next to the pastors from his church and weeping for the loss that he claims he had suffered. He held prayer circles daily saying, quote, I believe the Lord will bring them home. Law enforcement continued to treat it like a kidnapping, but also examined the possibility that she left on her own volition, scanning her credit cards and also her bank statements. But they remained untouched. Police questioned the neighbors to see if anyone had seen or heard anything, but strangely, most of the neighbors claimed that they didn't really know the Blacks. I mean, obviously, they had just moved there. Those in the surrounding area claimed that the family mostly kept to themselves. So, police turned their attention inside the house to take a closer look at what had been going on between Michael and Jennifer in the days leading up to her disappearance. Thankfully, Jennifer journaled almost daily, keeping meticulous track of what was going on in Abby's life, and also making notes about her personal life and her marriage, in addition to quoting scripture. She mentioned that the couple's sex life was almost non-existent, and four days prior to her disappearance, on Friday, November 9th, 2001, she and Mike had a pretty big fight. She wrote in her journal simply, quote, Fought with Mike on Friday. When questioned about the fight, Michael feigned ignorance and didn't have an explanation for it. But police found this odd considering that they also found a typed apology letter among Jennifer's belongings. And here is what the letter read. Jennifer, I love you. I'm sorry that we have ruined this day and the opportunity to spend our lunchtime together. I don't know what went wrong. My intent was to spend a wonderful time with you and coincidentally get some Christmas shopping done. That obviously went horribly astray. The Lord tells me not to let the sun go down on my anger and so I won't. You are the light of my life. I ask your forgiveness for any wrongs I've done to you, and I also forgive the wrongs I have perceived against me. I do not want us to waste a weekend being angry with one another. I would love to take some time today to talk through the problems we're having. I'll send this as an email, and also I will bring it home to you. After Paul says to not let the sun go down on our anger, he says, quote, do not give the devil a foothold. Ephesians 4.27 I'm sorry if I've given the devil a foothold. I will always love you. Love, Michael. Rightfully so, this admission of guilt and Michael's aversion to acknowledge the fight didn't sit well with investigators. Upon the discovery of the apology letter, police obtained a warrant for the computer and phone records of Michael Blagg. And what they found would shift the blame to him immediately. Police described their discovery as, quote, disturbing 
and horrifying. Michael had thousands of depictions of hardcore pornography showing men dominating women, sometimes seemingly against their will. Not an indication of guilt on its own, but for a man who played the role of the devoted Christian husband, bewildered by the loss of his wife and daughter, the discovery of a nasty fight and graphic pornography did not bode well for Michael's fate. When questioned about the pornography, Michael explained that he had it so that Jennifer could learn from it and, quote, better please him in the bedroom. Oh my Yikes. God, fuck this guy. I hate this guy. So the female prosecutor later said that there was, quote, no way Jennifer had been interested in seeing these depictions as they were, quote, humiliating and nothing that Jennifer would have wanted to see or learn from, even for her husband's sake. So in December, the Black family put up a $3,000 reward for information leading to the discovery of Jennifer and Abby Black. Michael went on record to say that he was irritated that he was being considered a suspect, but that wasn't enough for him to change his odd behavior in the days following the supposedly devastating disappearance of his wife and six-year-old daughter. After the house was finished being scoured for evidence and was released back to Michael from police, he began asking people if they wanted to come by to, quote, see where it happened. Are you kidding me? I mean, that's just disgusting. That is a horror. That, that's Could you imagine not... doing that? No, no. You you have to be a horrible person that's to like, do that. It's, that seems like you're excited about it, like you're showing people something cool. Yeah. So on February 5th, 2022, uh, two, <laughs> sorry. On two, February 5th, 22. I, I don't know why I always mix up 2002 and 2020. I almost did it again. On February 5th, 2002, almost three months after Jennifer and Abby had disappeared, Michael was brought in for questioning by Mesa County Police for a third time. But this time, there was a new charge being leveled against him. Theft. So the company that Michael relocated to work for, like I said, I think it's Amatech Dixon. I think that's how you say it. I think so too. They had caught Michael on camera stealing from them, and they reported it to the police who had already been surveilling him very closely since November anyway. Michael was accused of stealing plastic bins, a table, a paper shredder from his office, which for someone who made well over six figures was very odd. Now, Michael also reported pieces of Jennifer's jewelry missing from police, but they happened to only be pieces that were insured, which is also suspicious. Like as if he's trying to get a payout you know, right. for, for jewelry that is not actually missing. Right, exactly. So this time, Michael was questioned for 10 hours regarding the theft and eventually arrested and he was detained. Investigators pressed him on the issue of the pornography and Michael broke down crying and admitted that he was struggling with an addiction to pornography and that Jennifer had discovered the files on his computer and confronted him about it. Not only was this whole sequence of events very suspicious, but detectives had, for the first time, caught Michael in a lie. They then veered into questioning him about the possible deaths of Jennifer and Abby. They asked him directly where the bodies were, to which Michael responded that he, quote, couldn't tell them, and then refused to speak further on the subject without a lawyer present. While he awaited legal counsel, his boss at Amatech Dixon contacted him to inform him that he had been fired. And, uh, good riddance. But Michael posted bail and was able to go home while awaiting trial for the theft charge. 
Now, while police were convinced that he was the culprit in the disappearance and likely deaths of his wife and daughter, they had not yet obtained direct evidence. Shortly after Michael was released and headed back home, police stopped by the Black House to retrieve the stolen merchandise and walked into another bloody scene. Michael had tried to kill himself. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. Heath and I are major sufferers of seasonal allergies. They are the worst. It can even be difficult to host this show when our noses are all clogged up. We have tried brand after brand, but luckily, for those of us who live with symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin Clear with Claritin D. And big shout out to Claritin for supporting this show and providing us with samples. Designed for serious allergy sufferers, Claritin D has two powerful ingredients in just one pill that relieve your allergy symptoms and decongest your nose so that you can breathe better. I feel like I sneeze all day long. I always have an itchy face, but now I can actually go outside in the grass and not have a sneeze attack or be stuffed up thanks to Claritin D. Are you ready to live as if you don't have allergies? It's time to live Claritin clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. 
Find Claritin D at the pharmacy counter. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so that you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. Before that quick break, we were told by Heath that Michael had tried to kill himself and police happened to walk in on this scene, which is nuts. Now, little trigger warning for attempted suicide. Police found Michael in a bathtub upstairs with his wrist slit and bleeding alongside a Bible, a picture of his wife and daughter, and a note claiming that he didn't do it. Okay, buddy. Insane. Michael was rushed to the hospital, but his cuts were found to be superficial, and the Mesa County Police, fed up with his antics at this point, surmised that he had only staged the injuries to slow down the investigation against him. So, so he, if you, he really didn't want to take his own life, yeah. so the police think, and they, this was just his way of, you know, being dramatic. Yeah, of course. Yeah, he's being dramatic and also very manipulative. Exactly. Right. Because if this is his his way of trying to convince them that he's innocent of like, I was going to take my life. And look, I even wrote this suicide note that I didn't do it. I must not have. You well, know, I'm like, glad. I'm glad. It's manipulative. That, yeah. And I'm glad that the medical professionals were able to tell like, yeah, these were very superficial wounds. Right. So in April, area volunteers and many of the Blagg's uh, church community launched another search for Jennifer and Abby. So April, you know, this is like six months later. They combed an area with a 45-mile radius for 11 days without coming across a single sign of either of them. Nearly 200 people volunteered on every day of the search. Realizing now it's actually about five months later, not six. So with the news of Michael's termination circulating at Amatech Dixon, a former co-worker remembered something that may be of note. Michael had been behaving very oddly on the day of Jennifer and Abby's disappearance. And remember all those phone calls and those voicemails. 
Now, investigators requested the security camera footage from the company, and on it, he could be seen dumping multiple items into the large trash receptacles outside his office. These dumpsters went straight to the Mesa County landfill, just a nine-minute drive away from Amatech Dixon. Six months to the day after Jennifer and Abby Blagg went missing, police convened at the landfill to commence a nearly impossible search, just kind of hoping for some sort of miracle of finding a piece of evidence in a massive amount of trash. Using the logs at the landfill from the day the two were believed to have been killed and dumped at Michael's office, investigators zeroed in on a particular quadrant of the landfill where the trash from Amatech Dixon would have been brought back in uh, November, and they focused their search efforts there. Two days after the search began, Michael left Colorado without telling police where he was going. And while he was technically allowed to do this, this obviously looked really sus. But as they continued sifting through trash, officers described the conditions as hot, dry, and putrid. But they were determined to find the mother and daughter who seemed to have vanished into thin air. And on June 4th, 2002, they did. Combing through waste piece by piece with a digger was incredibly tedious work, but in one scoop that was pulled into the machine, investigators noticed, to their absolute shock, a human leg flop out the side of the claws. Jennifer's partially decomposed body had been wrapped in a red and black tent and discarded among garbage. Every body part that they could locate in the area that belonged to Jennifer Blagg was taken to the lab for testing. And within two days of the initial discovery, dental records confirmed that it was in fact the body of Jennifer Blagg. She had been shot in the head at close range, and there had been no evidence that she attempted to fight back, indicating that she had been asleep. She had still been wearing her nightly retainer. There was still no sign of Abby, though. An arrest warrant was issued for Michael Blagg immediately, who was nowhere to be found at this point. But police in Georgia apprehended him at his mother's house and extradited him back to Grand Junction, Colorado, charging him with the first-degree murder of Jennifer Blagg. In the affidavit detailing the arrest, Jennifer is described as an abused woman who was seeking to leave her marriage. And it also revealed that Michael had been using an escort service in addition to his addiction to pornography. Both Michael and his family stood by him and protested his innocence, much to the horror of Jennifer's family and friends. Her brother David reflected, quote, There is no emotion. There is no passion. There is no, where is my wife and daughter? It's not there. It just doesn't exist. In January of 2003, after being locked up awaiting trial for seven months, Michael posted the $500,000 bail required to walk free and return to his mother's house in Georgia with his trial set for October of that year. So, you know, nine-ish months later, or almost 10. During this time, as his defense attorneys began building his case, they argued that there was no direct evidence tying Michael to the death of his wife and the disappearance of his daughter because Abby's remains still have not been found and it was technically true that there wasn't direct evidence but the community seemed sure that he had been responsible 
His attorneys also tried to move the trial out of Grand Junction, Colorado, arguing that he would not see a fair trial there, but a judge denied this request. The Blags' next-door neighbors, who was a mother and her daughter, had apparently been suffering from a stalker at the time that Jennifer and Abby disappeared, and his attorneys attempted to kind of explain the abduction and murder was actually this stalker missing his mark, intending to murder the next-door neighbors instead. Yeah, bullshit. And if anybody's a stalker, it's probably Michael. I mean, this is a really interesting angle, but I, I just don't buy it. So finally, after many delays, the trial began in March of 2004, and Michael was convicted on first-degree murder, theft, and abuse of a corpse. He received a sentence of life imprisonment without parole. For a decade, Michael sat in prison and his legal team filed appeal after appeal to no avail. But in 2014, his luck changed. Michael Blagg's lawyers discovered a juror from his original trial in 2004 who should have been recused herself. While attempting to select a jury from the community made well aware of the heinous acts committed against Jennifer and Abby, the jurors were asked a series of questions detailing whether or not they had any history of domestic violence or abuse. One juror, Marilyn Charlesworth, was found to have not disclosed that she had been in an abusive relationship for 10 years. Now, when Michael's defense team got wind of this, they filed for a mistrial and demanded that their client be tried again. So, he was. In 2018, they attempted to overturn Michael's sentencing on the basis of a biased jury. In February of 2018, he stood trial once again, and this time he even testified on his own behalf. But it wasn't enough to convince a jury that he was innocent and should go free. So once again, he was convicted of life in prison without the possibility of parole. And once again, concerned about a possible push for the death penalty, he offered no answers in the fate or location of his daughter Abby, continuing to defend his innocence. The ordeal of rehashing everything for the second trial of a guilty man was extremely hard for those who knew and loved Jennifer and Abby. Jennifer's mother Marilyn remarked that it, quote, brought hurtful and painful memories flooding back to my mind. I have memories of weeks spent in the first trial. I remember seeing pictures of the landfill, a bloody bedroom, and nothing on Abby. I have memories of weeks listening to heartbreaking evidence. For a parent, nothing compares to the loss of a child. The district attorney was less diplomatic about it, saying, quote, he's a narcissistic pig as Agreed. far as I'm concerned and deserves the sentence he got. But there were no answers when it came to the whereabouts of Abby Blagg. And because Michael continued to assert his innocence, neither he nor his legal team offered any answers or explanations. And tragically, to this day, Abby is still missing and presumed dead. And this was almost, this just we just passed the 20-year anniversary of this. I don't know how, I don't know how you could claim to be a religious person and... Or just a person. And, and your daughter goes, your six-year-old daughter goes missing. And you're sent to prison for it. And you can't even, after 20 years, 
give up the location of Abby. Yeah, I mean, it's really sad. And it's crazy that they did find Jennifer, but not Abby. So was Abby uh, put in a different location? Was she there and they just couldn't find her because there was so much trash? I mean, there's still so many questions. And then there's, of course, why this happened. Like, obviously, we, uh, I mean, Michael has been convicted of this, so we can say that he's guilty because he is. But it's also a, a belief standpoint. You and I do believe that he is guilty of Absol- these crimes. Yeah, absolutely. So it just makes you wonder why. You know, did is this a classic? Oh, she wanted a divorce, and I couldn't. I couldn't take that. But then, what does Abby have to do with that? You know, I mean, not that that justifies murdering your wife. That's not okay in any way. But why would you kill your child? Yeah, but also, what is your plan? After this, what is your plan? What are you going to do? Like start over. And yeah. he he probably wanted to, you know, date other women and be with somebody else. And well, yeah, maybe thought that having his child in his life would muddy things up for him. But that is like a deeply selfish person. Right. Yeah. I mean, he was, you know, seeing escorts and stuff like that. So, yeah, maybe that was the motivation. He just did not want a family anymore. Well, every few years, missing posters still circulate with an age progression photo, but this has never led to finding her because she is presumed dead. And the uh, Abby Jennifer Recovery Foundation was formed to organize large-scale search parties for missing children after the search for Abby and Jennifer Blagg in Grand Junction, Colorado. If you have any information about the whereabouts of Abby Blagg, please contact the Mesa County Sheriff's Office at 970-244-3500. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Going West. Yes, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode And on Tuesday, we'll have an all-new case for you guys to dive into. What a devastating story. I mean, I just can't believe so much time has passed and there still aren't answers, even though that does happen in so many cases. And what an evil man. Evil, despicable little man. Horrible. Absolutely horrible. But thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. Again, happy holidays if you're listening when this comes out. We hope you're having a great Hanukkah. We hope you have a great Christmas, etc. And we love you guys so much. We're so appreciative of you guys and hope you have have fun this weekend my dad is coming to town to stay with Heath and I so we're just gonna be hanging out with him and family here and it's gonna be a good old cozy time absolutely well we hope you get to spend time with your friends and family for the holidays and like we always say for everybody out there in the world don't be a stranger This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. 
Granger for the ones who get it done.